You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 14th of January, 2015, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And my name is Harry Knight. If you're looking for the Surf Simply tutorials, then you can find them on YouTube by typing in Surf Simply tutorials, and they've got their own podcast feed on iTunes as well. Again, if you just type in Surf Simply, you'll find this podcast and the tutorials as well. Fantastic stuff. Um, how's your week been? It has been a fun Fun week. I'm very excited. I've just bought my tickets to go to the Northeast Conference of Scientific Skepticism in New York. So I'm just going to go and geek out in New York. Very exciting. Yeah. And I've actually been chatting with one of the guys at the Google office there who, uh, you know, who's a friend of ours who came to stay at Surf Simply. And uh, he just tentatively asked me if I'd be interested in going and speaking to some of the surfers who work at Google in New York, which would be really cool. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but um, that, that could be really exciting. I'm not sure how I feel about standing in front of a room full of some of the smartest people in the world and uh, talking to them. But uh, yeah, no, it should be pretty cool. Yeah, that's very exciting. What about you? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, I've had a good week, actually. I've, I've spent the entire week geeking out myself have you been geeking out on model airplanes no that's finished now that is now hung from my roof yeah it looks very cool <laughs> so i imagine that in your bedroom you've got like one of those uh mobile displays like babies have with just lo- loads of model airplanes going around in circles i would actually really like that <laughs> but no i've been geeking out far more far more excitingly this week you know i've been been playing around with the trace yeah, I saw the GPS thing. Yeah, and Trace have now been, they just posted on their Instagram feed yesterday one of the waves that you and Asher did together, where you sent Asher out with all the stuff on the board. Are they Trace Up? Is that what they are on Instagram? Trace Up on Instagram, yeah. Yeah, you, that's something worth checking out, listeners. I thought so, that yeah. was kind of cool. Well, yeah, so that was really fun. So that was kind of a fun thing. We had to, uh, we had to get the internal clock on the camera synced to an atomic clock and to. How, how do you sync something to an atomic clock? Oh. So you start with an atom and a clock? Uh, yes. <laughs> cool. So, so uh, but yeah, basically, so the the the, the timestamp on the videos has to be the same as the data coming off the the device, which is is obviously being fed from from the GPS, which all works on being nanosecond uh, right. synced. So that 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 was quite a fun little project, and I, I've been having a few emails back and forth with them. And then the other thing that has been quite exciting is I've been asked to do some testing on a Sorento GPS exercise watch to see if that will work for surfing. And so this morning I surfed, and uh, it's the first time I've tried it with a heart rate monitor on. Uh-huh. And uh, how did that go? Well, first of all, it was incredibly uncomfortable because it's yeah. one of those you know little belts that you see runners always jogging down the street with, but it, it sits right on your breastbone. Yeah, because I saw you out in the water, and I mm. noticed that you had this funny lump sticking out of your chest, and I was wondering how you were paddling with it. Yeah, I suspect I might put a few dents in the deck of the board with it, because it, it, it's okay when you're paddling normally, and you've just got you know a little bit of arch in your back. Yeah. But when you flatten your chest, just as you're trying to catch a wave, and you maybe flatten the chest of the board, that, that it, it kind of digs in. But the cool thing was, you know, I think I'm a reasonably fit individual, and certainly for paddling you know for catching waves i think i'm fairly paddle fit um my resting heart rate is somewhere around somewhere between 60 and 70 and uh, what was your what was your average you got an average heart rate for the whole of your session did you know like seven 
That's pretty good. What, so, and a high heart rate was what, like 120 something? Yeah, 124. Which, I, you know, I, I, I expected to see big peaks because, you know, you, you paddle hard into a wave and then you catch the wave and you're working hard surfing it. You know, you, you jump off the end of some waves and you're out of breath and you can feel your heart pounding in your chest. So I was expecting to see some high peaks. But at the same time, you know, I thought I would go out there. I was out for an hour. I think I got about 16 waves, uh, according to the trace. Yeah. So that I spent a lot of time sitting and not paddling. But obviously, you know, the, the amount of, of exercise that you're doing when you're paddling and you're surfing, there's a recovery time. And I, I'm obviously catching waves regularly enough that actually the heart rate didn't really drop below 100. It'd be interesting to see uh, if, if you did that regularly, like uh, once a week and you went out surfing for an hour and you had that on, it would be interesting to see how quick your recovery time was. So the other thing you got back from that is your speed, right? Uh, well, so the, the GPS is monitoring your movement. So obviously, you're then seeing peaks and, and troughs as you're moving around. In the okay, region. so it's not the same kind of precise movements that you're getting off a trace that's stuck to the surfboard. Well, the trace is stuck to the surfboard, but the other thing is that GPS is only really accurate to within, I mean, probably about 10 metres, Okay. Really, you know, if you're absolutely static, then it can it can increase the accuracy a bit. But really, for something moving moving along, it's 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 accurate to to ten meters or so. So the problem is that that a lot of what's happening on you know when you're paddling for a wave mm-hmm. is happening too fast um, for GPS to pick for up. for GPS to really pick up. So the way that trace works is actually most of it's coming from the most of the data is coming from the accelerometers which can tell, you know, you're accelerating forwards from, it knows what your current speed is from the GPS. It knows that you're accelerating at a certain rate because of the accelerometer. Uh-huh. It can therefore tell you very accurately what your speed is. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So when you looked at the data that you got back this morning, mm-hmm. you had a graph with two lines on it, two axes. So mm-hmm. you had on one axis, you had your heart rate and on the other one you had time. But then on the other vertical axis, there's two vertical axes, you also had speed and mm-hmm. then time and again on the bottom. So you had two lines, one showing your heart rate and then one showing your speed. So did it look like, you know, like three, well, I don't know what like a paddle speed would be between three, four kilometers an hour, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then did you see like spikes each time you caught a wave? Yeah, so you're seeing a big spike in the speed when you catch a wave. And so that eventually what they want to do is use those spikes for the watch to auto count your wave. And that's how Rip Curl's one works. You know, Rip Curl have got this watch that, that counts it. And what their watch does is as soon as your speed goes above a certain amount, it says that person has just caught a wave. Note it down as one wave caught. Yeah. I wonder what would be a good cutoff speed. Like what, seven to eight kilometers an hour? Yeah. I doubt anyone could paddle that fast. It'd be fun to try. You know, go out into a lake and just see how fast I can get going in a stride. I was thinking I might do it in the tide pools. Yeah. Is go down there and just, just paddle as, because the, the tide pools. We could go and do that this afternoon after the podcast. Yeah. This, this could be our most geek, geek surf geek out day ever. <laughs> it could be. So last week saw the first WSL sanctioned event as opposed to the ASP. Uh, it was a little one star event that kicked off in California, but that was the first event with the WSL branding, um, the new QS format, uh, and everything else all underway. So that was quite exciting. It also saw a return of Fast Eddie. Steady Eddie. <laughs> Indeed, Eddie, Eddie Rothman came back uh, really with a follow up. The, the, the video, which I think we've spoken about in the past. Uh, where he was getting a little bit upset about the change in the pipe format. He was basically upset because there weren't enough Hawaiians in the pipe masters, right? 
Yeah, and they, they they changed the entry requirements. But but anyway, they, that was filmed very off the cuff. He has now put up, it's on his own YouTube channel, uh, put up a little rant against the uh, the WSL. I think when most people watch it, they're going to see quite an angry man getting upset about some stuff. But I thought it would be interesting just to go through it, partly to see, you know, I think he does raise a couple of points that are worth raising, but also... It's good. It's a, it's a fun little exercise just to go through and just have a look at how much how much of what he's saying is actually, you know, can be backed up by evidence, and how much of it is maybe a little bit more of, of a, a rant. First things first, just a little a little background on Eddie Rothman. He uh, was born in Pennsylvania, in the U.S., but grew up in uh, Southern California. He ran away from home at the age of thirteen and ended up in foster homes in Hawaii one way or another. So just just to confirm, and I feel that this isn't important, but I think Eddie does think this is important, Eddie Rothman is not Hawaiian. He is not. Okay. Okay. In the 1970s, he was a a young man in his 20s on the North Shore. He got very involved with the local Hawaiian surfers. I mean, he'd grown up and gone to school with them all. And they formed Dehui, which basically translates as the club in Polynesian, uh-huh. and their push was as the as surf contests started to become more professional and started to to come about. Their push was to try and prom- make sure that the Hawaiians were getting a fair say in what was going on. Right, and so they're uh, they're all about equality. That was their aim, yeah. And uh, they they started off the first time anyone saw them was they all paddled out in the middle of the heat in the nineteen seventy six um, North Shore contest and just started catching waves in the middle of the. The contest peak. And was that the black shorts who beat up Rabbit in the busting down the door yeah. story? Yeah, so that, that was where a lot of all that came from. Um, De Huy has gone on, they make board shorts, um, they've become actually a pretty big brand. You can buy uh, their board shorts in Costco and various other places. Yeah, um, And they've moved into MMA fighting uh, equipment as well. Okay. Um, Eddie Rothman I'm sh- is quite vocal in this whole video about how anti-capitalist he is. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was Does interesting. Does he have shares in Dahui? He is the owner. That's interesting. Okay. And he has a million-dollar compound on the North Shore. <laughs> okay. Um, in 1987, he was arrested for racketeering and drug offences. In uh, 1999, he was arrested for first-degree burglary, kidnapping, and extortion. Oh, my God. Um, Maybe we shouldn't do an analysis of this video. Racketeering just a, is a criminal activity that is performed to benefit an organisation such as a crime syndicate. It's basically been various references to things like a Hawaiian mafia, but the, the, the actual charges brought against him was that they were holding back uh, competition and surfing on the North Shore. Oh, OK. So he wasn't involved with anything outside of the water in, in an organised crime type way. I, okay. <laughs> no comment. He was cleared of all charges. We have to use the word allegedly. I yeah, guess, it, none of the charges stuck, but it was more to do with uh, technical errors than anything else. It never really came to court. Okay. So anyway, uh, Eddie has made a couple of interesting statements. So listeners, this is uh, Eddie Rothman, taken from his YouTube channel. And, and I think as, uh, when you're listening to this, again... I think a lot of people might say we shouldn't give this kind of thing a stage because it's quite aggressive and a little bit unpleasant. But I do think it's actually quite fun to talk about some of the points that he raises. So anyway, here it is. Okay, I got 50 grand that says you put me on a lie detector and you put Graham Stapleberg or Randy Rourke or Paul Speaker on a lie detector. 
we'll see who's telling the truth here. No verbal acrobats. This erases everything. You want to talk, you can't get too fancy here. You get on a lie detector and let's do it. How does the ASP work? The ASP works by stars, points, and that's it. It works money. If you can put money in, you can have a contest in the Great Lates, a six-star prime, worth 10 times more than the kids' contest at Sunset Beach, where it was 15 feet, death waves, eight to 10 feet of pipe, death waves again. On the same day pipe ran, there was a two-star in Florida because there was more money in the contest. A five-star in Virginia Beach a month after, five or six times the points. And before the people come here, they have the, the Brazilians, excuse me, the Brazilians have a contest in Brazil, a six-star prime. You think they get paid for that? No, they take the points, rat pack the whole fucking contest over here. You know, the ASB works in a funny way. It should be, you take your surfers from their own countries. You make some kid travel all over the world, he ain't got no money. And the ones with no money, they don't go nowhere. So, this is how it works. Money equals stars equals points. Come on, you gotta surf every little shithole in the world? Not right, because there's money. We have money. Talk about money. Oh, we're gonna put a hundred grand into a trials in Hawaii. Fuck the eight guys that came out of the fucking Volcom. They came out of the Volcom. They surfed their hearts out. They put their lives on the line. They came out into the Pipe Masters and you just throw them on the side and you're taken too because who are you, God? I don't think so. It's not the way it works. Who, let's identify some of you. Who are you? Mr. Graham Stapleberg, who are you? Are you the guy that told us we had $300,000 waiting for us after our first backdoor shootout and the next year we asked you where the money you made like you didn't know us? Are you the guy that told Oceanic Stapleberg Oceanic Cable, that if they put anything of us on their station of the Hui, that the ASP's pulling out, that wouldn't be you, would it, pal? Hey, Mr. Rarick, who are you? Are you the guy that works for Vans, that doesn't have one Hawaiian-blooded rider on Vans, but we have this, we make all our money here, we have corporate houses, we got everything, we got money. Well, Mr. Rarick, you seem to fit in just right because aren't you the guy that worked feverishly to kill the Duke Hanamoko contest? Aren't you the guy that stole Mrs. Mamala's house? I would hate to think you stole that whole pure Hawaiian lady's house for one-fourth the market value. There's laws against that now. Would she have Alzheimer's, Garrett's disease, something? She had something and you stole it and you live in that place. Yo, Paul Speaker, who are you? Where'd you come from? Seems like you got a lot of money to throw around. What's that guy's name you get the money from? Ziff? Is that your money guy? Hiring Blackwater, Israeli combat soldiers. The Israeli one blew up in your face out and that didn't work out too good for you, did it? Well, I don't know, Mr. Speaker. I think that uh, you guys bought the big wave tour just to bury it. Now you're over here in Hawaii trying to impose your wills, huh? We'll do this. We have money. We'll do that. We'll bring in Australian Water Patrol? Are you really thinking you're going to bring Australian Water Patrol here to Hawaii? What, what's going on here? Again, if I've said anything to offend anybody, it's okay. Good. Just put your money where your mouths are. 50 grand. Bring it. Come on. Let's do this. No verbal acrobat. No, no verbal acrobats. No. From a man who's just delivered the most stumbling acrobatical linguistical bit of gymnastics that I've ever seen. Well, I think the technical term's a gish gallop, isn't it? A gish gallop. Yeah. I what? Do you know what? I made a few little notes of things I wanted to bring up during this. Dwayne Gish. Do you know who, who that was? 
he was this, uh, he was a biologist, but he was a creationist, like a young earth creationist back in okay. the 70s and 80s. And he used to debate uh, evolutionary biologists. And he had this technique that he would use where he would make a quick point that would take like 10 seconds to, to say and would take about three or four minutes for the evolutionary biologist to explain why it was incorrect. So he'd say something like, you know, if evolution happened, why are chimpanzees and humans around right now? Right. And I'm not going to go into a whole podcast about evolution, but, you know, you can explain why that's incorrect in about Mm -hmm. 45 seconds. Now, if you say 10 or 20 things all at the same time that each Mm -hmm. require a minute or two minutes to explain why they're wrong, you can in less than a minute completely make someone who's got a lot of valid points look really stupid. Yeah. And that's called a gish gallop. Yeah. And that's kind of what I feel like Eddie Rothman has done right here. He's made a lot of points. So, Well, well, a little bit. So... This isn't the first time that he's spoken about having issues with the, the ASP, and I actually found some slightly better worded uh, quotes from him. So just as a bit of background, uh, Eddie Rothman has previously said, um, the problem is that the WQS events are held in shitty one-foot sloppy waves around the world. To say that the 44 surfers that make it onto the WCT are the best surfers in the world is not completely accurate because they qualify based on a flawed system. For example, the WQS events held in Brazil, Australia, Europe, Japan and the East Coast are generally held in one-foot crappy waves. Some of these contests are six-star events, which means you earn more points than surfing a two-star event. So when you can surf one-foot Brazil shit waves and earn 2,500 points and then surf pipe and earn only 800 points, you can see the flaw in the system. Brazil and Europe have enough six-star events to qualify for the WCT. In Hawaii, there are only two six-star events, and they're at the end of the tour. So all these guys have earned points during the contest, rushed to Hawaii, so they can look like heroes and push most of the Hawaiians out of their own contests. A lot of these guys are small wave riders and can't even cut it here. Jamie O'Brien won the Pipe Masters, Hanson Energy Pro, the X Games, and the Backdoor Shootout, but he still can't get on the WCT. He went around the world surfing their stupid little circuit. He surfed in 12 contests and never got out of the first heat because the waves were not even a foot high. So that's actually a really good point. And he does make a lot of points, but I, I think that that's really the only one worth spending time addressing in a serious kind of way. But Absolutely. Think, but, but he doesn't offer an alternative, does he? No, well, this is the thing. And, and what he says, I mean, let, let's break down what he said in, in the, the original piece and just go through that bit by bit. Okay, so can I start? Please do. Lie detector? Yeah. Seriously? Well, I guess his point is that... Do you remember you made a comment on this a couple of episodes ago about the very tactful response that the ASP made to Eddie's last video? Yes. I feel that that's what he's getting at, is that if you sit someone down on a lie detector, it's a yes and no answer. You can't start making... Right, okay. So the, the two things that I think is, number one... Just for anyone who's interested in listening, who knows about polygraph tests, they basically don't work. Uh, That's why they're not admissible in court. Whenever you're watching a movie or a drama TV show and they always bring in a lie detector test like it's infallible, that's just very poor script writing. Yeah. The other thing is, he doesn't actually say what the specific thing is that the ASP is lying about. I mean, I watched that video a few times. He, He doesn't... What is it that he wants Paul Speaker and Randy Rarick and him to sit down and be tested on? Yeah. You know? So anyway, that's just kind of a really odd way of beginning it all. I agree. And then the next thing he says is the ASP works on stars, points and money. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, if you're going to organise a contest circuit, and in fact, when the IPS was set up back in the 1970s, the whole point was to turn what was, I they referred to it as the gypsy tour, was to turn it into something where if you were surfing that tour, you could make money. And the whole thing has to revolve around money. A, a CT contest has a prize purse of, of half a million dollars that's divided up by the competitors. And that's before you've paid for any of the licensing and any of the setup that you see on the beach. So the IPS was the predecessor to the ASP. Indeed. The whole thing is a business, right? It's got to be. You know, it's not like people are just going to step up and just give money to people who win surf contests. It has, that money has to be made. It has to be run as a business. And there has to be points because it's a sport. And ranking the events with some kind of system so that some events get more than others using stars, that all seems perfectly sensible. I can't see that any, any criticism can be made about the fact that those are the elements involved with creating a world championship and a world championship tour. I I would agree with that. Um, I think as long as it is stars, points and money and politics doesn't come into it, I'm a happy man. Um, He then says, if you put money in, you can have a contest in the Great Lakes, a six star. I think... To within reason, I think that that probably is true. Okay, so that's this is kind of like the butt of his criticism. He's saying that traditionally, the way that you get onto the world tour is by getting enough points on the WQS, the World Qualifying Series, and the, the events on the World Qualifying Series are listed into stars, and then you have a prime event. And am I right in saying, Harry, that to compete in like a three-star event, you have to have got enough points by entering one and two-star events? So anyone can enter a one-star event. Absolutely. If you get enough points, then you can enter a two. If you get enough points, then you can enter a three. Correct. And so you need to have already got enough points to enter a starred event above what the previous one you entered was. If Absolutely. You see what I mean? And then the higher the star of the event, the more points you get for doing well at it. And therefore, the, the higher the next event you can enter is. So if you've got enough points, you can just be entering prime events and get enough points on them to go straight into the CT, the World Championship Tour, which is the top 34 in the world. Yeah. And, and, and Eddie Rothman's complaint is well, that I there think, aren't I think... enough prime events in Hawaii for people, for Hawaiian surfers to get onto the WCT without going on tour around the world. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, the interesting thing is if you actually look at the list of prime events, they try and make sure that the bigger events are spread around the uh, around the world. So the prime events, for example, there are two in Hawaii, uh, there are two in Europe, there are two in America, there are two in South America, and one in South Africa. So they're reasonably spread around the world. So... There's more. What he's saying is that if you if you have enough money, you can have a prime event where there's bad waves. Yeah, I think I think that's what he's he's suggesting, and I think it is true that a lot of the events on the QS don't have. They're not particularly prestigious in terms of waves because the people who are sponsoring them. So, for example, the prime event in Portugal is just outside of Lisbon. Of all the great waves in Portugal, that event is not held in those waves. It's held where the sponsors are going to get the most exposure. But the event. It costs money to run and prize money has to come from somewhere. And so when you're running essentially the business of a surf contest, you just can't do it if there's no money coming in, right? Absolutely. So, you know, the long run, I suspect, you know, if I was the ASP, then what I would probably be wanting to do is try and get more corporate sponsorship in to have better webcast and TV viewings, at which point you can start to dictate a little bit more where you want to hold the contest. But we're not at that stage right now. And the, the QS struggles in that it needs, you know, the, a lot of these events are sponsored by very small local companies. So, so what you're saying is that the ASP needs to promote themselves better to, 
to make more money so that they can move these events to perhaps where better waves are. Yeah. And are they doing that? Well, I think that's their push with, you know, trying to commercialize the events with the rebranding to the WSL, with trying to approach TV companies and, and syndicate the, the events. So why is Eddie Rothman getting upset with them? Well, so he then goes on to say that, you know, this six star would be worth 10 times the kids event at Sunset where they were putting their lives on the line. And that's it's it's not quite right. But the, the pro junior at Sunset, the total prize purse was worth five thousand uh-huh. dollars in total. And this is this is, that's a junior event. But that's a junior event. So, I, you know, I can kind of see that point. But I think trying to sell people on, on the kids tour is, is a little hard. Um, whereas by comparison, you know, the, the other events that happen on the North Shore, there's two other events at Sunset. There's the Hick Pro and the Vans event. And those have got uh, $95,000 and $250,000 on the line. So it's, it's not that there's no money in the, in the Hawaiian tours. So he's, he's picking up a couple of examples here of where it's, it's really out of balance, how, what, the, what the event is worth in terms of points and prize money and what the waves are like in terms of how big, dangerous and awe-inspiring the waves are. Yeah. But I guess the question is this. Waves are essentially unpredictable. I mean, we've seen enough contests at sunset where the waves are terrible. Um, yeah. And we've even seen pipe where the waves have been terrible and they've just surfed it onshore Ahukai next door. Yeah. Um, so given that there is the, this big unknown variable, which is the ocean, all you can do as, a, as the ASP or the WSL is you can create a system for you know, how much contest should be worth and where they're going to be. And then you're always going to get just random events where you have one wave that should be great, but it was terrible waves. And other waves where it's not worth anything, but the waves were epic. And definitely that one, that junior contest at sunset, I mean, that, that was incredible if you've seen the footage of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so... But well, I guess what I'm saying is just because there's a few random anomalies doesn't mean the system's broken. It doesn't necessarily mean the system's broken. And here's the thing, the, the pro junior event was sponsored by a surf shop on the North Shore. Right. Yeah, this was a huge ASP event. Was it sponsored by Dahui? No, it wasn't sponsored by Dahui. <laughs> so this is the thing. The reason there was no money in it yeah. was because no one put the money up. So, it, you know, if Eddie Rothman can, can persuade people to take more interest in kids throwing themselves over, over ledges on, you know, 15, 20-foot faces at sunset, then let's get the money rolling. You know, no one's going to complain about that. That's quite interesting because he says at the end of his speech, put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of feel like he could have done that with that event, surely. Well, I think it would be going back on 40 years of being fairly anti-organised surfing, ASP organised surfing. I think that would be a hard thing to do. He then makes a couple of statements that the same day that they ran Pipe, there was a two-star in Florida. First of all, there are no uh, clashes with any ASP Pipe event. Male, female, adult or junior, all the Pipe events have clear windows with any other event uh, operating, so there was no clash uh, with an, an organ. There may have been an event in Florida, but it wasn't an ASP one because there are no ASP events in Florida. And even if there was an ASP one, it's still only a two star, which surely is more or less in proportion. I mean, I don't know what the waves were like that day in Florida, but I would think typically a Floridian beach break being ranked as a, ranked as a two star event wouldn't be something that Eddie should be getting upset about. Absolutely. And he then makes a, a mention about a, an event in Virginia Beach, which is a four star event. It's held in August when uh-huh. the North Shore is basically flat. So again, there would have been very little contention there. But anyway, he then goes on to talk about the six star event in Brazil. 
that the guys come over. So there are a couple of, uh, there's one six-star and there's two prime events. They're based around Sao Paulo and Rio. Brazil is an enormous country. And um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is straight after having this rant against these Brazilian events, he then makes the statement that you make some kid with no money travel all over the world. He ain't got no money. Yeah. So my feeling is that the response to that is, well, then in that case, we need well-ranked events. You know, we need six stars and primes in as many locations in the world as possible so that surfers from all over the world can do well. Yeah, Um, I agree with you. I thought this part was slightly self... Well, I think a lot of what you said is self-contradictory, but this bit in particular. Yeah, so the six stars in South America, you know, a lot of the kids down there, obviously, they don't have a ton of money. They're not going to be able to travel. So there are a few events in in Brazil. If the kids can, you know, get on buses and and club together, they can get to the couple of events, couple of ASP-sanctioned events in South America. They can then hopefully build up enough points. And, you know, hopefully they can start to think about entering these these six-star events and, and qualifying through the tour, which is fantastic. You, you look, you know, the population of Brazil is pretty enormous. Um, it's somewhere in the region of 60 million people that they have one six-star and two primes, I think sounds sounds pretty valid compared to the population of Hawaii, which is just one state of America, which still has, I think, two-star events and two primes. Right. And so he, he's saying, well, because... When he was talking about this, he said about the Brazilians not winning enough money at their prime events and then taking the points and then coming to Hawaii and rat-packing Hawaii. Yeah. And it wasn't clear to me, was he complaining that they had prime events or that they didn't get enough money in Brazil or that they were Brazilians were coming to Hawaii? It's- so I think that here's the tricky thing. So with those prime events, they both had $250,000 prize purses and the first place person in those contests got a $40,000 check. Right. So the competitors definitely got paid. I'm wondering if his point is, you know, who put the money up for that? I'm not sure whether that's his beef with it. I think the thing that he's upset about, and it mirrors the quote that I gave you earlier, is that those prime events were held in beach breaks, um, you know, relatively soft conditions. Those Brazilian surfers then were able to all come to the uh, events in Hawaii with enough points to qualify for the Triple Crown. Right. And his complaint is then that they rat pack the whole contest over here. What does he mean by rat pack, do you think? Do you I think sus- he means that there's just a lot of Brazilians there? I think his upset is that there are a lot of, because the Brazilians were able to get the points and then travel to Hawaii, that there were a lot of Brazilians in the event, well ranked, going into the events in Hawaii. Now, that of course fails to point out that just as the Brazilians travelled from Brazil to Hawaii, the Hawaiians could have travelled from Hawaii. To Brazil. to Brazil. I think it's fairly fair. And, and just as the Hawaiians can't surf so well in small one-foot surf, so the Brazilians might not do so well in, you know, triple overhead pipe. But it, it should then balance out. And he says later on that they uh, shouldn't be over here. I can't remember exactly how he phrases it, but he basically says they come over here and they can't even surf these big waves. And then he complains that they're winning the contest that they shouldn't even be in. Well, it's like, you can't have it both ways, Eddie. Yes. Either they can't surf these waves, in which case you're going to beat them in the contest anyway. Or the, when I say you, I mean the, the Hawaiians. Yeah. Or, you know, they can, and then they're winning the contest, and then, well, they deserve to be there because they're winning. And it's not like, especially this year, they had good waves for all three of the Vans Triple Crown events. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel that his good points that he started off trying to make get lost then. In, in that rant and in that 
you know, in those comments. I mean, he sounds like he hasn't really sat down and thought about what points he wants to make, and he's just saying things as they pop into his head. Yeah. I've never heard anyone use so many sub-clauses in sentences, and quite often not even <laughs> finish the sentence, and changes the person. One minute he's like, we, meaning the Hawaiians, and then he says, we, meaning the ASP. And yeah. he, he just, and then he says, that's not how it works. And he doesn't make it clear whether he means that shouldn't be how it works, or that isn't how it works, or that's not how he'd want it to work. You know, yeah. it's really difficult to tease what points he's trying to make. Yeah. He then goes back to the, the pipe trials event and gets very upset that these guys, you know, who surfed their heart out in the Volcom event aren't getting in. Now, can I ask you about this? Because mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand this. As I remember it, the eight or 12 highest ranked surfers out of the Volcom Pipe Pro got entered straight into the... sixteen. Inv- Oh, the top 16 sorry, finishers. Sorry, it used to be the top 16 would go straight into pipe. They oh, right. then cut it to the top eight, and went into the invitation. Right, and they didn't go into pipe. They went into the invitational, which was the trials event before pipe, only two surfers of which would go on into the pipe masters. Absolutely. However, if you look back over the history, only two surfers from those 16 wild cards that used to get put in made it, ever made it to round three. And well, round, ever? Ever. And that's round three is where they start earning any prize money. So none of those competitors that used to go into the pipe event ever walked away with any prize money. And, and what was the prize money in the Invitational? $100,000 split between the competitors. So, and everyone that entered got a cut of that. You know, even the last place finisher got a cut of, of that 100000 So historically, you, you would have had the top 16 finishers at the Volcom Pipe Pro from the previous year going into the main pipe event. But historically, none of them have ever actually come out with any prize money. Nope. Whereas this year, it was the top... Uh, I think it was the top eight from that, but then it was also the ones from the domestic Hawaiian tour. It was also some guys for, from the, the other system. So it was all Hawaiians apart from Jack Robinson... And they all went away with prize money. Absolutely. And now here's the interesting thing. He makes a point, these people surfed their hearts out and they're not going anywhere. Well, under the old system, didn't matter who you were, it was only the top 16 Hawaiians that would be, however, however good anyone from Australia or Brazil or anywhere else, if they surfed in the Volcom pipe, if they weren't Hawaiian, they didn't get the wild card the next year right right so again there's a real kind of double standard there with the system whereas this system is exactly what he wants this is all the local guys very specifically the local guys going in and having their own contest with a good prize purse yeah i mean it's kind of this is like a broader politics thing and i guess it goes back to the whole idea of affirmative action and at what point do you skew things in the favour of an ethnic or racial or geographical group that's had uh, things go against them in the past. And at what point do you say, okay, the balance has been readdressed, now let's just put everyone on a level playing field and move forward from here? Um, And I don't know, the answer to that question in surfing like in everything is really complicated. But uh, I mean, I feel like certainly it's not as if the Hawaiians... I mean, they've got their own invitational contest and yeah. they, they are given preferential treatment in, in the Pipe Masters. Yeah. Um, so he then goes on to make some, some ad hominem attacks on some of the people involved in the ASP. Now, you and I are kind of geeks when it comes to little critical thinking pieces of terminology. Harry, tell me, what's an ad hominem attack? So an ad hominem attack is where you attack the person making the statement rather than the statement itself. So I say something... That you say, disagree with. And I say, Harry, you're a total Exactly. And you attack me rather than the statement that I made. Anyway, right. he starts off with Graham Stapleberg, 
who is the chief strategy officer for the ASP. He says that Graham Stapleberg offered them 300000 for the backdoor shootout, and then that money never came through. Now, the thing I can't work out is how old the backdoor shootout is as a contest, because Graham Stapleberg only joined the ASP under its new guys this year. So it's obviously got nothing to do with this. The backdoor shootout, the earliest mention I can find is about 2008. Um, Going all the way back into the 90s, um, Graham Stapleberg was actually the CEO for the ASP. Could you find anything on... Could you find any any history of him having any drama with the Huey or Eddie Rothman before this? We'll get there. For most of the the last 10, 15 years, uh, Graham Stapleberg has been um, part of Billabong in the US. Who used Um, to run the Pipe Masters. Who used to run the Pipe Masters. And my guess is that the money that he supposedly offered De Huey would have come from Billabong. Um, and obviously there would then have been a clash because De Huey is a clothing brand, Billabong would have been a clothing brand, and that would have been a big a big hole. I don't, I don't know that for sure because I, I don't know when this event supposedly took place. Um, but I do know that Eddie Rothman does have previous history, Graham Stapleberg, from when uh, Eddie Rothman's son, Macau, and TJ Barron, who are both riders for Billabong, got in a fist fight on the beach. TJ Barron, who is the kid at the beginning of Endless Summer 2. The same one. But nevertheless, he had to step in and threaten them both with a loss of contract unless the beef was dropped. Interesting. Uh, So there's some back history there. He then mentions Oceanic Cable. Um, So Oceanic Cable are the company that screens uh, the ASP events in Hawaii. Right. Again, I don't know this for sure, but Graham Stapleberg is the strategy officer for the ASP. His job is to make sure that the ASP is presented in a good light. Right. And he has Eddie Rothman previously making some pretty violent, threatening, um, statements. threatening statements. It wouldn't surprise me at all if, if he asked the cable companies yeah. that are representing them to not air those comments. I think that is a completely reasonable request by the ASP. And I think that... Certainly if, from a business point of view, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you want to, be, if you want to receive airtime, you have to talk in a civilised, productive way, rather than going on a gish gallop of ad hominems. Absolutely. Um, So next on his list is Randy Rarick. Randy Rarick has been involved with the running of the Triple Crown pretty much from its inception. He's most well-known, though, as a shaper. He's been shaping in Hawaii. Uh, He's been based just back from Sunset for years and years and years. Same as Eddie, he is not originally from Hawaii. He moved there when he was five. He makes some comments about Vans. He has no affiliation with Vans. Oh, he doesn't. So he takes money from Vans because Vans are the headline sponsor of the Sunset event. Right. He is therefore presumably paid by them as well. Um, you know, his paycheck is coming from Vans, but only because he's the contest director. For the Triple Crown. For the Triple Crown. I see. And then Eddie complains that there's no Hawaiian team riders on the Vans team at the moment. Yeah, which uh, may or may not be the case. I'm not sure about that, but it's so. Certainly... But the implication is that he would like he would like team riders to be sponsored by Vans, not because they're good surfers, but because they're Hawaiian. Possibly. I mean, that, I'm inferring that from what he says, which I think is not a valid point at all and deserves being dismissed immediately. Uh, I mean, as soon as you start giving out sponsorship deals based on where you're from rather than how good you surf, I mean, I just don't think that's a logically justifiable uh, position to take. Yeah, Randy's got a pretty. Solid reputation. Um, his McNomer is Mr. Clean, 
yeah. uh, he's never been involved in any real controversy. Has he ever been uh, involved in racketeering or uh, nope, nope. arrested for selling drugs? No, not no. yet. Um, it, so Eddie then uh, accuses him of taking a, a house for less than the market value. Again, I couldn't find a lot on that other than Randy saying that, that when he decided he was going to live there, he went door to door knocking, asking for a room to rent and was then offered the house that he now lives in. So, in that process, so that's his side of the story. I have no idea what the what the overall deal is, but what an what an, what a, a completely unnecessary point to bring up in this conversation. I would agree. I think that's exactly why ad hominems are what they call logical fallacies rather than actually valid arguments. Yeah. So he then finally brings up Paul Speaker, um, makes reference to Mr. Ziff being the money man. So what was all that about? He said something about Blackwater and Israeli combat soldiers. Again, I couldn't find too much reference to this. Um, I believe that the ASP have hired security staff. Um, again, traditionally, they have hired North Shore locals as security for the ASP. But event. you can see why they might not this year. Exactly. And exactly the same with his comment about the Australian Water Patrol. Again, the patrol is generally provided by the Hawaiians um, and by guys like the Dahui and the Wolfpack, who you can understand they might have looked into alternatives yeah. for this year. So, yeah, on, on both of those fronts, that seemed to be the case. He also mentions they have bought the big wave tour in order to bury it. Yeah, um, that was odd. I've never seen the Big Wave Tour promoted more than I have this year. I mean, Me neither. Have you ever barely, seen webcasts for the Big Wave World Tour before? I mean, I was barely aware that the... I, I mean, I, I saw that there were individual events that took place, but I, I wasn't even aware of there being an organised tour really before this year when it's been pushed, I mean, certainly harder than the QS events. Yeah, yeah, much harder. I think that the ASP or the WSL have done a really good job promoting them. Yeah. And then he finishes off by saying... $50,000, let's do it now, no verbal acrobats. And my note that I wrote was, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Here's the thing. I do think Eddie Rothman raises some valid points. Um, I do think that there are flaws to the qualification system. I do think that finding a balance between sponsorship money and wave quality and all the rest of it is, is a, a delicate thing to find. And it'll never be perfect in everybody's eyes. But I do think that if you're going to come to the table, and I think particularly if you're going to come to the table in such an aggressive manner, then you do at least need to be on record somewhere of having a proper solution to the problem. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Your emails now. And we've had a few emails coming in this week. Uh, not just asking pe- us to promote their uh, surf t-shirt brand, but actually questions about surfing, which is what we love. Um, please do keep your questions coming in. Well, and suggestions and feedback and, and kind of anything like that. It's always really good to hear what, what listeners think. We're quite pleased with how the podcast's been going on the whole. We've, yeah. we've put out four episodes. This is episode number five. Um, and we've had about 2,000 listens on each one, yeah. which we're pretty pleased with. I think that's kind of good going for, for starters. Yeah. Uh, if you do want to get in touch with us, then email podcast at Surf Simply uh, or send us a message to facebook.com forward slash surfing. Yes. So this is a question from Noel Lapierre. Ah. And he said, well, actually, he sent through a few questions and a couple of them. Uh, one's about the format of the World Tour. We've probably talked about the ASP and the World Tour enough for one episode right I think now. So, yeah. And he asked another quite technical question about swell forecasting. And I think... That would probably, though both of those would be good maybe for future podcasts. Yeah. I thought I'd just read this third question that he asked out 
he said, hey guys, love the new podcasts. Um, it gets down to the bottom. That's always nice. Start your emails with that. We like that. That's yeah. nice to hear. Uh, he says, on board technology, what do you think of the relatively new fin systems that don't require a key and therefore make it easier to switch out fins for conditions or even change setups like a thruster to a quad? As a side note, I had one fin pop out and lost recently on my first use, but FCS customer support was great and sent me a replacement. So I guess he's talking about the FCS2. Yes, uh, the, the, the tradition. So we've basically got future fins, FCS, and then FCS2. Those are the three ones. And FCS2, you've got, and they're a bit different, aren't they? Yeah, so the, 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 the two previous systems, we had futures and FCS that have been running side by side for years and years and years. And both of them uh, involve inserting the fin into the bottom of the board and then screwing it down using a little uh, hex key to tighten a bolt up to hold the fins in. Which always gives you the opportunity to make the joke when someone asks you where your little fin key is to say... Let me have a little fin key. Nice. Whee! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, it it certainly does allow you to forget the fin key um, for somebody else to run off with it, to strip the thread on it, and all sorts of other problems. Um, Yeah, that's the annoying bit, is when the thread goes. Yeah. So... FCS have just released this new system which involves uh, a screwless entry. It just the fin just clips in and clips out. It's um it's actually a pretty cool idea that the front of the fin is locked in pretty tightly. There's a, a notch in the box in the surfboard. Harry's doing lots of hand I'm waving lots of hand and describing now. So yeah, you imagine no there's good. a little notch in the front of the fin and a little uh, slot in the front of the box, and those two go together, and that holds the the front of the fin in quite nicely. And then when you insert the back end of the fin. There is a, a metal bar, it's a, a non-ferrous uh, metal so it won't rust, um, with a plastic roller. And as you insert it, the, the bar bends and the roller sort of rolls around and then into a, a depression, in the, again, in the base of the fin. And that theoretically locks it in. And, and how have you it found it? Fantastic. Um, you haven't lost any fins yet? As yet, I haven't lost any fins. Uh, Noel, though, is not the first person that I've heard who has lost a fin, and I'm not quite sure why and how they're coming out. Once they're in, it actually requires... I mean, you've got to be pretty brutal to get the fin out, in my experience. It it feels like quite a lot of force that you're applying to pop the fin out, so I don't know whether the fin maybe wasn't quite in right or whether it was a malfunction on the fin or the box. But but on the whole, you're giving them the the keyless FCS2s a thumbs up. So on the whole, I'm giving them uh, a pretty massive thumbs up. I think it's a much stronger system than uh, the old FCS system. Um, It's installed under the glass, which I think gives it much better strength properties than, than the old FCS that was installed after the glassing of the board. It's a, a more curved box. I've seen a few cases where the futures boxes, because they're so thin, yeah. when the fin starts to flex and load up power, um, it actually uh, starts to crack out from, from the, the glass. The, the base on the FCS2 boxes is a little bit wider, so hopefully it's got a little bit more, uh, a little bit more leverage on the, on the board. Yeah, I, th- I think it's in general it's a good system. They've released a whole, a whole set of fins with it as well, which I, I really like. Uh, the thing I've enjoyed most, I've always aspired to the you know have a little kelly fin on the back of the board yeah um true. i get this fin with the little circle on it i'll yeah, definitely the, surf more like kelly the, exactly the kelly fin that's going to make you surf better but actually it's interesting because the the kelly fin was the only upright fin that they used to do the you know really sort of vertical template all the others were more kind of all the back, others were more raked back and the kelly fin was only available for medium-sized people and i am not a medium-sized person so i've i've never been able to use that that smaller upright template and the nice thing that they've done now is released four templates 
in small, medium, and large. And one of oh, those is a, a nice idea. Yeah, so they've now I mean, got an upright template, a swept template, and a sort of medium template, and all of those in a small, medium, and large size. And I think that's a really good idea. I think a little bit like a lot of people surf boards that are too small for them, a lot of people surf fins that are too small for them. I mean, I think it's a, a really, really common thing. And you, you get the situation where the board is kind of slipping a little bit on cutbacks and bottom turns. And that has the effect of making you as a surfer just rein it in a little bit because you're scared that the board's going to slip out. Yeah, and absolutely. as soon as you do anything to your equipment, which makes you not want to push turns as hard, that's going to really affect how much your surfing's progressing. And Kelly actually uses really, really small fins relative to how how big he is. I'm about the same height and weight as Kelly and I surf all of the FCS big arc fins on all my boards. And whenever I surf the Kelly signature fins, and I am a man who likes the Kelly signature stuff, I'm a big fan of the placebo effect. <laughs> whenever I get the Kelly fins, I find that my turn starts slipping. I mean, obviously he's using a lot more of his rail and that's how he's able to do it. But, you know, I think a lot of surfers that are, that are surfing... If you're a good surfer at your local beach, but you're not, you know, a QS, you know, competitive mm-hmm. level surfer, on the whole, if you're around 160 pounds and you're surfing Kelly fins, it's possible that they're a little, little on the small side. That, that's just an opinion, but you know, that, that's yeah, my 50 I mean, the, cents. The, the rating for them is up to about 180 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, what you've got to be doing is really surfing on the rail of the board. You've got to be using the rail to do your turns. And if you're relying on the fins to give you a bit of drive, those little Kelly fins are going to they're going to start slipping. So if you've got a board that's feeling a little slippy and slidey and you're starting to angle your takeoffs rather than lay into a big bottom turn, I would go away, get some big fins, whether they're FCS2 or regular FCS or futures, stick some big fins in your board and start going straight down to the bottom and leaning into a big bottom turn. And it feels good. I mean, going back to the FCS2 system, one thing I have found with it is it does make me a lot more inclined to play around. I've got a couple of sets of fins and I've got quad sets and thruster sets. And I've found that I'm a lot more inclined to turn up to the beach and pop them in and pop them out. Um, or even, uh, I've only done it a couple of times, but, but you know, run up the beach and change fins mid-surf because it's, it's such a painless thing. I'm not sitting there fiddling around with um, yeah. screws and things like that. So I think that's good. One thing I've, I've thought about doing is even putting them in my pocket. You know, putting the quad fins in my pocket. So then you'll be out. paddling out with your heart monitor on, your GPS on the front of the board, your fins in your back pocket. I you need a utility like belt. Definition of a kook. Aren't I? It's, <laughs> it's just as well you're a big enough guy that no one gives you shit when you're in the water. <laughs> if only that were true. <laughs> okay, so before we wrap up, um, a quick contest uh, contest roundup. Um, we've just had. Like I said earlier, the first WQS contest in California is won by Kolohe Andina. We're also appropriately in the middle of the Dahui backdoor shootout, uh, which is going on at the minute. They're getting some really good waves for that. So if you can uh, if you can find a webcast, they're putting it out on YouTube. They don't have quite such a good uh, webcast set up, but you can find the... Uh, they should uh, look into some sponsorship. Yeah, they should look into some affiliation with the ASP, maybe. <laughs> there's also there's a good swell coming into Hawaii, and we'll get to the forecast shortly, but uh, the Jaws paddling event from the Big Wave Tour is gone on to a standby. 
Oh, that will be amazing to watch. So that will be very exciting. Bearing in mind, we, we were talking about this last episode, but the last time Shane Doran was out there and got some amazing waves, he was out there for seven hours and he got four waves. And he considered that a very successful Jaws paddling session. So if you're watching that event live, I would just slightly reset your expectations of how fast you expect the action to be coming. Yeah, it might be a good one for the highlights reel. And then finally, January 29th is the start of the Volcom Pipeline Invitational, which should be pretty good. Uh, hopefully they'll get some good waves for that. Last year, that was ama- that was the one that Slater won last year. Yeah. Ugh, that was good. Um, so moving on to the forecast, the North Atlantic is looking horrible. Um, there's three big low-pressure systems all fighting each other. There's definitely a lot of waves. Um, if you can find some shelter behind uh, a little cove or somewhere, you may well get some uh, some waves, but it's going to be pretty windy. How far south are you going to need to go to get away from the storms and just get the waves, or is that not going to be possible? Well, I don't know. I mean, Morocco and the Canaries might be all right, but it, it's it's pretty turbulent out in the Atlantic, so I don't know how clean the swell's going to be. I don't think it's going to be very well lined up. Okay. Um, I might be wrong there. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, the South Atlantic was a really nice-looking... Uh, little setup um it's going to push some good waves into south africa and more excitingly namibia so maybe some uh, some good skeleton bay footage coming out soon that place looks amazing yeah. if you haven't seen it listeners just type skeleton bay into youtube yeah it's pretty incredible um th- that's actually also going to push all the way north up into sort of ivory coast and uh, liberia and places like that so uh, if anyone's a wandering adventurer in uh, in West Africa, there might be some uh, some surf coming your way. You ever seen that movie? Sliding Liberia. Sli- yeah, I was going to say Sipping Jessica. Great movie. Sliding Liberia. Yeah, that is a good movie. Um, there's a pretty tight little looking typhoon in the Indian Ocean, which isn't going to generate a ton of swell, but uh, India and Sri Lanka might get a few waves from that uh, middle of next week. Um, the big storm going on, uh, the big clean storm is uh, brewing off uh, Japan right now, and that's going to send some huge waves through. Uh, it's going to hit Hawaii Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, um, and then roll on down through North and Central America. So are we going to be getting some waves off that? Yeah, we should. Um, it looks like it's going to be one of those really tasty north swells that yeah, just think, lights all the beaches of Costa Rica up. Yeah, fingers crossed next weekend, and not this coming weekend, but the weekend after, we should start to see see some swell from that so i'm pretty excited about that (laughs) Uh, so that's the forecast before we go um thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed the show uh if you did please leave us a little review on itunes that would be fantastic that really helps helps one star they talk a lot about fins (laughs) 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 i'll rephrase that can you leave us a nice review on itunes lots of stars and nice comments yeah really helps uh, everybody else to find us but um hopefully you'll join us again next time and uh, have you got a, a little soundbite to send us out with yeah i couldn't i like to find a little quote but i couldn't find a quote this week that really jumped out at me i could have pulled a ton of quotes out of eddie rothman's speech but i feel like we've had enough uh, eddie for one day i thought that by contrast it might be nice to leave this little uh, this little piece of music in your ears so we've got a nice sweet taste of hawaii to close with goodbye ladies and gents bye That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.